Hi there, nerdlings. This is Ash. And this is Matt. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast, which is now a member of the Spilled Potion Independent Arts Collective. You can check out all the awesome things the collective is up to, as well as the other fantastically nerdy podcasts that we've partnered up with over at SpilledPotion.com. And now, nerdlings, let's grab our flashlights and join us as we venture down into the dark world of true crime together. Hey there, nerdlings. This is part two of our interview with Lee and Anthony Redgrave from Redgrave Research Forensic Services. We were honored to have had this chance to ask them so many questions, and it was so enlightening just to learn more about the field of forensic genetic genealogy. So here is part two of our interview with the Redgraves. Thanks for listening. Anthony, you said something when we were interviewing you for Findlay Creek that really stuck with me. And it was when you said that people don't really care about a name, but when they do see that image that you made of Finley Creek, it really sticks with people. They care about that image more. Yeah, that's something that is the reason why I actually learned how to do forensic art. Um, Part of it is because actually doing that hands-on myself will help me to be able to see the similarities in in the faces when we're starting to get closer to to finding somebody who looks like that person. Mm. And the other is that if there's a if there's a picture that you want to look at, if there's somebody that looks like this could be my friend or my brother or my sister or my neighbor, that'll stick with people. And it'll make people think about that case and think like, what can I do to help? And like humans just latch onto faces. And regardless of if it's so that a person can say, this looks like my friend, I'm going to call this in. They might say, this looks like somebody that I care about. This is a human being. I want to help, even if I don't know who they are. So it's it's really important to have good forensic art whenever possible for any case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what kind of schooling is involved with getting into forensic genealogy or the reconstruction that you do? Well, the schooling or training involved in forensic genealogy is uh, my training course that I've, I've made. <laughs> yeah. Not to do like any shameless self-promotion or anything, but <laughs> there's only really a, a handful of available educational paths for this. Yeah. And there's a lot of like trying to DIY it and hack it, or yeah. there's yeah. things like the program that we've developed that we're trying to make it into something bigger so there can be some unification on how things are done. There are genealogy training programs mm-hmm. um, to become a certified genealogist or, you know, these different you know specialties have specialized courses and things like that. A lot of the organizations that certify traditional genealogists or even genetic genealogists prohibit you from using that to search for living people. So it is really outside of traditional genealogical certification, Yeah, um, which is why all of the leaders in forensic genetic genealogy are not certified genealogists, because having that credential would actually prohibit you from being able to work to find living people. There are some that are board certified, but they're board certified with the certification boards that don't prohibit that. Right. Of which there are only maybe two that I can think of. Yeah. So basically, um, some people have come into forensic genetic genealogy through being genealogists. Mm -hmm. Some have come to it through being data scientists, computer scientists. Yep. Some people are DNA scientists first. Uh, Some people work in a lab and then get into this. Some people are anthropologists. Some of them are librarians. Yeah, we have a couple <laughs> of librarians. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or teachers. Um, 
I mean, really anybody with a, with an investigative mind, a curious mind and puzzle solving skills and Mm -hmm. determination to keep coming back to a hard puzzle over and over again. People who like video games are really good at this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I feel like uh, anyone who's got a strong attention to detail would be like prime for Mm -hmm. this. Yeah. But the real important thing is that we are able to make sure that people have enough familiarity with criminal justice as, you know, a system that you're working within, familiarity with communicating with the police, with agencies, communicating with labs, understanding what lab processes are and how to read information the lab's giving you back about what they're finding. Right. These types of things aren't in one place yet for training. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to make. I see. There's, I think, maybe some like weekend long workshops that are available for this type of investigative work, but I'm pretty sure ours is the only practical uh, long-term program so far. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's great. So, I mean, you really are like setting the the groundwork for this field. I sure hope so. <laughs> to answer your, your other question about like, what are the, what are the educational paths for forensic art? Yeah. That also really varies. There are actual like degree paths you can go on for that, mm-hmm. but you can also do things like weekend long intensives. Like Karen oh, Taylor okay. is one of the most highest respected educators yeah. in the field of forensic art, but you can also learn how to just do it yourself. Mm-hmm. and get really good at it yeah. or you can go to school and get really good at it and um from what i've seen it like depends on what we want to get out of it like we have somebody that we've been working with who has a doctorate oh, wow. in doing forensic imaging and she's amazing yeah and then anthony who his he has a background in fine art but it's kind yep. of a while ago yeah um yeah. and he applied it to comic art for a long time before yeah. ever getting into game design so this is you know, <laughs> ancient history yeah when anthony went to art school um, <laughs> and he didn't go to art school for forensic art i was adamantly against drawing anything like realism because i was like why would i bother why wouldn't yeah. i just photo oh, this is stupid yeah <laughs> but i was a teenager yeah. <laughs> and um when i got to the point of realizing that I could contribute more to forensic genetic genealogy if I learned how to do forensic art as well, because I realized I've got the basic skill set to do this. I just have to learn yeah. some stuff about skeletal anatomy of the skull. I started learning how to do that off of Karen Taylor's book. That's what I used for yeah. the most oh, part. Okay. That plus actually talking with and working alongside Carl Koppelman, who was also with the DNA Dirt Project. Yeah. He actually helped me get my feet wet a lot. Thanks, Carl. <laughs> and then you also um, sat in on several anthropology classes that were talking about uh, cranial anatomy. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. So cumulatively, I kind of DIY'd that. Um, And I would not personally say that I'm anywhere near a professional level, but I would say that I'm good enough for what I do. And I make pictures of of people's faces that could be them. I would say (laughs) that you have recently achieved a very professional level very quickly. I would would second that. She she looks beautiful. I would say she's one of my best. And I really hope that I really hope that something comes with an ID because honestly, I don't know how good I am until there's an ID and the one that I did for the Missouri case, like 
that was pretty close, but I could have gotten closer, but also the remains were really damaged. Right. So you're kind of having to guess, I get this. Um, I have a background in art too. We talked about this last time and, you know, I can only imagine just from drawing fictional faces or portrait work of someone, if you're only working off of like a broken cranial region, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine trying to figure out how how like the technical piece of where everything goes again, like, you know, cheekbone may be slightly skewed or worn away to time or what have you. So it's going to skew the the artwork slightly. The good news is that there's a lot of data to work with for averages and estimates of mm. what things should look like, even if there's a lot of damage that a yeah. lot of inference can be made. But things like um, the fullness of a person's lip or, or like right. Some of the placement of, of a person's eyebrows, although there are some markers you can look for for the general shape of a person's eyebrows. So it's things like that. Yeah. Like whether a person's earlobes are attached or detached, like things like yeah. that, you can't entirely figure out. But based on some other clues, you can make some educated guesses. But for the most part, we can get pretty close. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell I mean, you from having sat next to Anthony uh, while he's learned how to do this. Yeah. Um, and also watching him do art from you know before learning to do this. If you ask Anthony to sit down and draw a realistic human face, yeah, draw a face on a piece of paper that looks like a real human, it's not going to happen. No, right. it's not going to happen. I draw comic book faces if I don't have a skull to work off. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> what he's doing, what he's doing is he's reading the skull. Yeah. And the skull is telling him what's there. Yeah, he, the face is already there. He's yep. not picking up the face. Yep. That makes total sense to me. It, it, it honestly like I'm watching something happen more than I'm doing. It. Yeah. When I did Finley Creek, it was like I was watching her face appear before me. And I was like, holy crap, she's beautiful. Yeah. And that's happened more than once. And it's like, I get a pretty good idea when I first look what it's going to end up looking like. Yeah. But I don't really know until I'm done. And I'm like watching something happen through me, not to get like too spooky or anything. No, that's, yeah. That's what it's like. It's your artist eye takes over and it's your dissociate from it. It's not, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how to explain it more than that, but I, I completely understand what you're saying. Cause you're focused on what is the skull that I'm looking at building mm -hmm. that up and it's layer by layer by layer and it's yes. section by section. So you're seeing it. Your artist eyes is always my term, but eventually you stop kind of having control on it. It's just your drawing takes over. Yeah. Yeah. That's, this makes that's sense. exactly it. <laughs> yeah any artist is going to be like, yep, <laughs> it is that it is. There's just a part of your brain that it's kind of like a, I don't know. It's like lizard brain almost a little bit. It's just, mm -hmm. it does its own thing and you kind of go with it. You're like, all right. Um, but yeah, that makes total sense. And you're not dictating who this person is. They're telling you. Yeah. And, and sometimes that can be hard because yeah. um, there was another one that I did. One of the earlier ones that I did, they actually want to do because I've gotten so much better. That was another one you did with Jason Fudge. Yeah. Jason, uh, yeah. One, of, one of Jason's earlier cases that he brought to me to, to do art of forest John Doe out of Lake city, Florida. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't make someone be attractive. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't find him unattractive, but I definitely got a couple of nasty comments for no good reason, because that is what was there in the skull. That is right. what he looks like. Absolutely. You, you don't know? control that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if folks always realize that. It's like, no, they just, they, they look the way that they looked. Yeah. <laughs> it was uh, reading Dolly Parton's autobiography and she was talking about how like she's written hundreds and hundreds of songs and some of them aren't good. And she says, 
you know, when you have a whole bunch of kids, not all of them are going to be pretty. <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> I love that analogy so much. I love her. <laughs> I mean, that's just it. Sometimes it's going to be great. Sometimes not so much. I work in technology. We actually say the same thing about some of the stuff we develop. We're always like, oof, today our baby is ugly. <laughs> oh, no. You know, we're proud of it, but it might not be the prettiest looking thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a term we've used frequently. (laughs) (laughs) So I love that. Oh, my gosh. So I know we'd mentioned earlier about the Transdo Task Force, and I just was curious if you would mind just explaining more about your work with that and what's involved in training forensics for transgender cases or gender um, variant victims as well. Well, I mean, the basic foundation is the same, but one of the key parts of the concept of the Transdo Task Force is that there are plenty of people out there who have not been identified mm-hmm. because of yeah. their gender presentation and the way that they present themselves in life, not matching what the anthropological right. estimate says about them after death. Yeah, um, A person's assigned sex is going to sometimes be different from what they live as. And the person's right. assigned sex might not even necessarily entirely fit the mold of what their skeleton says when they die. There's a spectrum. There's a wide spectrum of of presentation of sex in a person's body, including in skeletal markers. So, you know, the the core of it is is the issue of identifying potentially transgender or gender variant does. But really, this affects so many more people than just that, because as we said earlier, when an anthropologist gives a sex estimation, the estimate part sometimes falls off and then there's a checkbox. Yep. Because the law enforcement agency wants the anthropologist to tell them, is this a male or a female? Because that's the first thing they say. You know, right. if you hop on any police scanner and they're, right. they're describing any individual, they're going to lead with, with race and sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's what they want to know from their anthropology estimate is what boxes do I check? Right. Because they're trying to get more specific. They're trying sure. to narrow down their field of search, which makes sense. Sure. But... If you're not really sure when you check that box, if it's not a, this person is for sure, check this box. If it's, well, we think maybe they might be, and then you check the box anyway. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. When an anthropologist makes a sex estimation, there are a series of points on a skeleton that they look for where they go on a Likert scale of like, this person is probably female and this person mm-hmm. is probably male and there's a whole bunch of points in between that and they take an average of that to determine what they think a person's assigned sex is going to be they might be like oh this pelvis looks pretty female but you know the shape of the forehead is maybe a little confusing and i'm not really sure it's right really middle and there's so many times when i've seen estimates that are not really, really black and white right? that still get read that way oh, and recorded man. that way. And what that ends up doing is at the end of the day, you're ruling out 50% of the population as a match that you might not should have done that. Right. Possibly more than 50%. What ends up ha- definitely more than 50% because here's the other thing, if we're talking retroactively, traditionally when missing persons or DOE reports were made, if an estimate was indeterminate, they'd automatically check mail. Wait, there was what? no unknown. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. In the the history of archaeology, there are a whole heck of a lot more 
male remains than there are females supposedly because there were so many that fell in the middle that the checkbox defaulted to male because that's what the English language does yeah. for the longest time before we had the gender pronouns or singular that right. people would default to he if they didn't uh, know the gender of someone. Right. So that has affected the human identification field. Yeah. 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 So I hadn't even really thought about that. That's crazy. Yeah. So what we've been doing is we've been working with anthropologists to try to start this conversation. That's really all we're doing. Um, We're asking anthropologists to have this conversation with us. And Mm -hmm. our goal is to try to get more attention to the trans cases and uh, the gender variant cases that have been specifically overlooked or deprioritized, but also the wider issues here that we're talking about. So we've presented twice now at AAFS, the American mm-hmm. Academy of Forensic Sciences, to specifically the anthropology section. Yeah. And we've um, done that in collaboration with two of our favorite contributing anthropologists, uh, Dr. Amy Michael and Dr. Marty Issa. Yep. And, and both of those presentations are actually on the Transdo Task Force website. Awesome. Yep. So what we've done the last time, uh, this actually a couple of weeks ago, it was yeah, just published just in February. We've put forth a model of basically harm reduction standards of how anthropologists can go about their casework mm. with this in mind. And Great. we can give you that link to include in the, in the notes. Too. Yeah, please do. We definitely would love to. It's amazing because I think it's really important piece too, is, is that people don't take into account transgender cases and how, how to approach those because there is a population there that isn't being advocated for. It isn't being discussed. There's a lot of factors um, that contribute to that. Yeah. There is epidemic proportions of specifically violence against black trans women. It is really bad. Um, And when you're talking about missing trans people and comparing that to the concept of unidentified deceited who may have been trans, you're running into issues of was this person reported missing? Right. Are they getting away from a bad family situation? Does their family even want them back? That's Who's going to want them back. Were they reported Ugh. missing? That is a major issue. Yeah. So there's so many hurdles. Were they properly reported? Were they were right. they identified to the police as this is a trans person? This is the name that they were using in, as they lived. Yeah. And this is how they might present if they were found as an unidentified deceit. Like, how were they actually reported missing? Right. And it's tricky. Yeah. There's a lot of factors there. And that's why we actually have the beginnings of a, a database for comparison specifically for the LGBTQ oh, wow. population. It's called LAMP. It's LGBTQ Accountability for Missing and Murdered Persons. That's amazing. So, all the cases that we found as the Transdo Task Force that might have been trans or gender variant are in there. And then we have a private section that's only available to investigators Wonderful. Um, or our volunteers with the Transdo Task Force of missing persons that have been reported missing by family and friends. Um, that's another thing that's different. We can actually take reports from people who are friends, roommates, acquaintances, um, and take those seriously and be able to compare that. I love that. That is so, so wonderful. It's really important work too, because that's something that I think with John and Jane Doe cases, people don't really take into account, you know, what if this person was transgender? So, 
you know, how do you approach that from an investigative approach? How do you find out who they could potentially be for matches? Like you said, if people aren't reporting, you know, where is it a runaway situation? So there's got to be a lot of layers to that. So I think it's super important that that is getting a voice and advocacy as well. And then also training police forces on being empathetic too and being a sympathetic to that cause. I think that it's a very divisive topic, obviously. Yeah. And what you really have to do is come at it not just as activism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like 50% activism. Yeah. Some of it is just helping the agencies to realize that what you're doing for them is a good thing. And that if what they want is to close cases and we're giving them a way to close cases, it shouldn't matter who that person is. Right. We're trying to present them with a solution Mm -hmm. that we're going to take care of rather than confronting them about a problem that we expect them to, you know, make amends for. Yeah. That would be, you know, in an ideal world, of course, they would say this should have been done differently or something sure. like that. But a lot of times this is, you're talking about cases that are decades old right. people who are working on the cases now don't know the people who are working on the cases when they happen. Yeah. And we can't hold accountable investigators 10, 20 years ago for the actions of whoever's assigned the case as a cold case now. Right. So right. coming to people with a solution rather than a problem and say, you know, this might have been done wrong in the past. Here's how we can do it right now. And it'll look really good for you if we just help you out a little. Yeah. So yeah, we try to spin it positive. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. It's like you said, it does help them out. So it helps everybody out. It helps family yeah. members out. It gives the victim back their identity. And it does also tackle a, a very sensitive subject too. And so it's a beautiful, I, I think just think it's a beautiful thing. I really do. So I just, I want to say thank you both for doing that. It's really, really special if you're taking the time to talk about it with us. Yeah, no, it's important. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just even from, you know, educating folks about that, always let us know. We're always, our door is super open. Ash and I are, you know, big believers in helping any way we can, so. Awesome, thank you. It's important that we all start tackling um, transgender cases and talking about the crimes that happen, so. We want to make sure that we are also um, putting ourselves forward as the people who can take the cases yeah. and work on them directly with genealogy uh, with a completely trans-informed team. Yeah. Because it's really important to the community to know that the people taking care of their cases are members of the community. Yeah. Uh, it's really important to any minority population to know that researchers researching the population mm-hmm. are members of the population so they can yeah. be sensitive to the needs of the population. Yeah. Um, one of my classmates in my doctoral program, his dissertation is about diversity in nursing. And he shared this article that he uses a reference in his project of how when a person can relate to the person who's providing their health care, it actually improves their prognosis. 100%. absolutely applies here. Um, people within the community need to know that their community is taking care of them. I and love that. that will be strengthening and will also make it so that we know these horrible things have happened to us over time, but we are also empowered to do something about it and yeah. go back for the ones who didn't make it. I love that. Like, seriously, it makes me, it makes me 
tear up a little bit. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, okay, but we're it's, constantly making ourselves. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just, you know, like um, Ash and I are huge, huge advocates for LGBTQ rights. So this for us, like, you know, just as allies, even it, it's really important. It's a conversation that I think is just so important to have. You know, I have trans friends. I have you know, and I always think about like, what if this was them? You know, what if something happened to them? So for me, it's just like, it it hits your heart where you're just like, yeah, it's important. And it's important for everyone to know too, that, that they have people looking out for them, that, you know, we all matter, we're all human. So it just, it, it makes, it's very special. It's very sweet. Yeah, it's, I spend a lot of time thinking, you know, any one of these people could have been me. Mm-hmm. So there's that, like a lot of what we do with the trans task force has to do with, you know, what if I died and was a skeleton in the woods? What would right. I, even, like, I don't even know. Right. So how many more people are there like me? Um, one to 2% of the population is born intersex and don't, and, and a lot of those people don't even know it. It's right. just as common as being a, a redhead. And how many redheads? Absolutely. Anthony is intersex and redhead. I love that. (laughs) We go from crying to laughing. That's how we roll. (laughs) No, I just, I think it's beautiful. (laughs) Exactly. No, it's beautiful. And it was important to talk about that too, because it was something that, uh, you know, it's weird. I've always had a passion for unsolved cases, for cold cases, Jane and John Doe specifically. I had never, and I, I was so like shocked that I had never thought about how assessments for transgender or intersex victims would even go. And I was like, so like, oh my God, I can't believe I never thought about that. So then it was one of those things that I wanted to talk about more because I think many folks don't think about that. And it's important to talk about it. The more we talk about it, the less people have that moment, the more it becomes part of our norm. Yeah. And and what I was saying earlier about it really only being part activism, like we're really not trying to force everyone to no. agree with some kind of ideology or something. Nope. It's actually just about human identification. Absolutely. And, thorough and not leaving anyone behind. Mm-hmm. Right. Just because their their skeleton may say one story, you can't identify that person if they live their life as somebody else. Yep. I think so. that it would be very hard to identify Anthony if he was a doe. Yeah. I think that people would have a very difficult time doing that. Yes. Yeah. I've gone through great effort to make sure that I will never be one. I have a very good rapport <laughs> with all of my very custom tattoo artists. And I have a lot of That's a good way to go. <laughs> <laughs> I got some markers too, just in case, you know, (laughs) what is it? Ash and I always say we do true crime podcasts. We know better. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's so funny because I told my mom because she was so against tattoos. And I was like, you know, mom, I know this is a very morbid way to think of this. (laughs) I was like, it's a way to identify me if anything were to happen. And she's like, don't say that. But it was a very morbid way of putting it. But she got it. She was was less uh, against your tattoos, wasn't she? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I've just accepted that mine are always going to stand out. My mom has come to terms that her kids are tattooed. (laughs) It's just who we are. (laughs) She actually doesn't care about my tattoos. She did not like my green hair nearly as much. (laughs) That was the thing for her. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty identifying, though. I'm just going to throw that out there. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, I I, um, 
we were just wondering how many police agencies oh, yeah. you both were currently working with with oh. the whole Redgrave. I wouldn't know how to really quantify that right well, now. In in terms of training or in terms of cases that we're taking on? Uh, in terms of uh, cases. Well, you just did our case map yesterday. I did do our case map <laughs> It's very busy. So... There's a few agencies that are like sending us one case and there's a few that are interested in sending us a couple of them one at a time. And then there's another instance of an entire region consisting of several departments that are all interested in sending us things that are trying to figure out how. So I don't really know how to quantify that. Yeah. Um, but also like also a lot of our submissions come from coroners and that's different from the police agency. Yeah. So, and we also have a couple with anthropologists. Yes. So. Anthropologists have an interesting uh, situation where they get handed down really old remains that nobody knows what to do with. So sometimes the police will literally just drop off some bones at a college and be like, here you go. Oh my gosh. At least your students can learn on them because oh, we wow. don't know what to do with them anymore. That's actually part of the inspiration for our internship program is how anthropologists will have a modern unidentified remains yeah and that's sort of like a symbiotic relationship with the law enforcement agency where they know at least they're being taken care of by people who know what they're doing and continuing to be worked on in some way yeah that makes sense better than just sticking them in a warehouse right so that's basically what we're encouraging them to do is bring them to us but we've got two cases are at the lab right now Mm -hmm. And we're kind of holding off on announcing what those cases are until yeah. we find out if the DNA is going to be good. Okay. Um, because they are high profile cases. Oh, okay. And if the DNA isn't good, it's kind of the last ditch effort for them because they've already been sent to try to get a DNA profile and failed once before. Oh, that was a few okay. years ago and technology's improved. Yeah. So we did our research and we found a really good paleo DNA lab. Mm-hmm. So like a lab that's used to handling ancient remains and oh, wow. we've approached them to work on this, to try to see if we can make a last effort to get a profile on these cases. Mm-hmm. And this is the extraction phase. This is like starting off on the right foot. So oh, we're working with old skeletal remains. What you have to do first is go to extraction, which is getting a liquid extract of DNA from solid material so the paleo DNA lab will be able to hopefully get something very usable out of these remains because they're used to handling things that have been weathered, that have been buried for a long time, have been handled a lot. Yeah. Um, so that's why we're going with that option for some of these more high profile cases because they have to be given like serious white glove treatment. And wow. we really hope we can announce either or both of them really soon, oh, but we want to make sure that we can. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we won't push on that one. Um, purely because as much as I'm dying to know, um, you know, <laughs> well, I completely it, get when we it. Announce them, you can just ask us to come back. I mean, <laughs> oh, I mean I, we're never going to turn you both out. Come over whatever you want. <laughs> Literally Ash and I will be like, so can you do next week? <laughs> um, you know, I joke, but I'm not. <laughs> This is our favorite thing. We could talk about this all day. Oh, it's so fascinating. Like Ash and I both nerd out on this hardcore. And I think that's part of the appeal for us with the cold cases too, is it's just, like I said, I love anthropology. So this kind of just fits it. They go hand in hand together. So it's amazing too. Like, I mean, some of these cases are, especially a lot of the high profile, they're 
60, 70 even years old. So Mm -hmm. the idea that you could actually like solve a case that's 70 years old, 60 years old, is just like, that's got to be like a proud moment too. the older it gets to feel like, Mm -hmm. wow, I just totally did what has been impossible for decades. I just pulled that off. That's got to be like a very proud moment for you both. That's how the Loveless case was. Yeah. That's why that got so famous, I think. That just like, that was just the beginning for me. I am specifically looking for the oldest cases I can find. Yeah. I have a couple of cases on my radar that are like, you know, Victorian remains and oh, wow. like, things like that. I just, yeah. I want to find one even older. I'm just yeah. like so excited. I like, since we did that, what else can we do? Right. Because when so, you- Here's one thing we can actually talk about briefly. Uh, I know, <laughs> I know, we're not doing anything super briefly, but um, <laughs> no, this is <laughs> we have been in talks for a while, um, over a year now, yeah. with the city of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, about the African burial ground. They, they, um, oh wow, it was 2014. Mm-hmm. They've been doing some construction in town, digging yeah. up the road. And some coffins popped out of it. Oh, oh my gosh. And they didn't know that there was an African burying ground under the Aww. road for many hundreds of years. So uh, 18th century uh, slave burial. Wow. So what we're hoping to do and what we've been in talks about for a while, they, they've, they've announced this themselves in, in the news, but what we're hoping we can do is get a usable extract from a couple of these individuals, make anything even remotely like an autosomal profile that is going to be able to be a reference sample. And even if we never know what those people's names were and what their lives were like, they can be references for people who might be their descendants. Right. There are very limited records for black people doing genealogy in the United States. Um, There's a huge wall and you know what it is. And if we can make a new record, we will do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's That's amazing. And that's one, I mean, that's just next door. And I I hadn't heard about that. Yeah. I didn't hear about that either. That's crazy. That's we're going to have to look into that (laughs) is the honest answer. Um, (laughs) Rabbit hole. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's just interesting. And I mean, because it's from hundreds of years ago to give their families information. That's amazing. If you can do that. We hope that we can. They've got a better chance now than they would have a few years ago. Like I said, the technology is so rapidly improving. Yeah. There was an effort to get uh, mitochondrial haplogroups out of them when they were first found. Yeah. And it took some effort and they did they did get them. And yes, their mitochondrial haplogroups indicated they were of African descent. But yeah. now we can get so much more. Yeah. That's amazing. Especially because like I, I myself, I'm Egyptian. So, you know, w- huh. we were such a melting pot too that we come from all over. So when you're especially like Northern Africa and stuff. So I don't know. That's really fascinating to someone like me too. So I think that's really cool. We just met somebody who is a specialist in Egyptian genealogy, if you're interested to. Oh, yes, (laughs) definitely. Yes. (laughs) You just made her entire year. Yeah, you literally did. I'll I'll, I'll get you hooked up. She's she's someone else. (laughs) (laughs) Someone else for me to nerd out with. (laughs) (laughs) My dad is still in Egypt. And so we're always like, our culture goes back a long time. Any Egyptian will tell you that we're the oldest. (laughs) (laughs) 
So we're very proud of our, our genealogy awesome. <laughs> and our heritage. So um, that's awesome. Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm super nerding out right now. <laughs> More so than normal, which takes a lot. <laughs> when, when we're working a case that is like partial remains yeah. and, and we don't have a good idea of who it might be, we'll do this. We'll, we'll try to figure out, are there missing people in the area yeah. that it might be? And we'll preemptively build their family trees. So we just have them ready to go. That makes sense. Because when we get that kit and upload it, we'll be able to tell right away if it's any of those people or not. Wow. That's so fascinating. Like there's just such a side to this that I didn't even know. I guess in my brain, it was just like, you take the DNA, you upload it and that's it. Like, I didn't really understand what all was involved so it's well, there's so... a lot of deep dive research yeah that, like, you end up learning a lot about like world history and other cultures at the same time too. that is so cool keep accidentally becoming experts on places that we've never been <laughs> ties to like i, I know love way more about ohio than i ever meant to <laughs> <laughs> we know this feeling deeply because we <laughs> we do this too we like deep dive into these areas you get so immersed in it that you're like I know a lot about Norwegian culture in Chicago that I did not know <laughs> six weeks ago. And I'm yes. like, if this ever comes up in trivia, I've got us covered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, you know, it does help though, because it gives you that perspective on the case too, where you're like, okay, I now know all of this information that mm -hmm. allows me to put the story together too. So I knew it was research intensive, but I didn't realize, I think how much research was involved. Oh, it can be very much. Yeah. <laughs> I think that uh, when we did the Bell in the Well press conference, yeah, uh, we had a pretty big team that we built, uh, a pretty big genealogy team that were working. And it lasted 14 months, the case. Wow. It was mm -hmm. a 14 month yeah. long case. I think when we totaled up our tally, it was over 10,000 hours of volunteer up. Uh, wow. Yeah. Was she originally, I had a question on Bell and the Well, actually, because I, I do know that case. So now when she was originally found, they had thought she was younger than she was, correct? Mm -hmm. That's what I thought. a really wide age range and she was actually on the higher end of yeah, the age. She was over the higher she end. She was over the higher end of the age. In her 60s, correct? She was 65. Yeah. I had known that case for a long time and that was one that I, I had not realized that you both had solved. Oh, yeah. So, that was so cool. I was like, oh my gosh, all of these cases I didn't even realize like over time has just like pieced together recently. So I was like, that is so fascinating. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what are the chances? But if you go back and watch the press conference, yeah, like, I'll watch well, that. about a quarter of it is Anthony. Yeah. Yay. I'll definitely <laughs> check that out for sure. But that's really <laughs> cool. Now she's the one that you were saying is related to you, correct? Yeah. She's a very distant cousin. That is so funny. Fifth or sixth cousin. Yeah, she's a fifth or sixth cousin with some removals. Yeah. It's actually more surprising to me that she wasn't more closely related, knowing mm. the area. Yeah. Because, you know, up in them hollers, everybody. Is <laughs> um, <laughs> which is one of the reasons why it was such a long case. Yes. Yeah. Because you have to sift through all the family trees that are very tangled together. Yes, they are. Yeah. Because what location was that? That was. Well, she's from West Virginia. Yeah. And she was found in Ohio. So. Like just over the border. Yeah. My mom's family is from Kentucky. So, mm. and they started out in West Virginia, but then they spread out. But mm -hmm. hers has, is a similar thing too when she was doing their history. So that's why I was curious. I was like trying to remember if it was Ohio or if it was West Virginia. I should see if I'm cousins with you and your mom. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, we might be related, <laughs> Anthony. 
Send me your gift basket number. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how this goes. <laughs> I'll send you our genealogy. There we go. And uh, we'll let everyone know how that turned out. <laughs> but yeah, it's just so cool to see these old cases getting solved. It really is. I feel like every couple of weeks I'm reading about another, you know, 60 plus year old case that's getting solved. So, mm-hmm. and it's all been due to forensic genealogy. None of it has been anything other than that of the last like five I've seen. So it has been just changes in DNA science and in the way that people are documenting their family charts and their family histories. Mm -hmm. So it's so cool. So just kind of speaking of like just the day-to-days of forensic genealogy, uh, would you mind just giving us kind of an insight into like what your day-to-day is on a, a daily basis? On a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Our, our day-to-day is that we wake up later than we really should, <laughs> we answer a whole bunch of emails, yeah. and then sometime around dinner time we start working on trees, <laughs> and then we're awake until dawn. <laughs> okay, this sounds, <laughs> this sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> You know, historically speaking, in most cultures, the time that is appropriate to work with the dead is at night. So it makes sense. It does. That is when I do my best writing. And when I do my best thinking or research is late at night. That's when I'm like feeling it. Night owls. This calls to night owls. (laughs) So we've got our intern team who is really, um, you know, spread out uh, across the country and everybody has different schedules. And so we end up working around the clock. Some people are waking up when some other people are going to sleep and picking up where somebody else left off. Yeah. And we have different groups for each case. And uh, not everybody is on every single case. So we keep the teams kind of small and keep good communication. And pretty much it's just constant action. When we were taking a break in our recording just now, I was checking in on the team and Somebody was saying, oh, no, I just found somebody who had 13 children and their names all start with E. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) that's the kind of exciting thing that might just come up at the moment. Right. (laughs) I have one person on our team who just keeps finding the sets of twins. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) it's just (laughs) it's wacky adventures in theology all day. But it's also then you know, switching tasks to making a phone call to a police department across the country to talk to them about a case or talking to a lab about a case. And we're always doing something. We're always doing six somethings, probably. (laughs) Um, I know that feeling. (laughs) Yeah, we wear many hats. Some of them are serious and some of them are silly. Yes. Okay, (laughs) so we do a lot of joking around. We mess around a lot with our interns and try to have fun. We have like uh, silly watch parties. and um, I love that. We also do work parties where we... We'll just hang out in a voice chat and work together. Yeah, so we try to keep it... We try to keep it... You can't keep it low stress. There's no way to keep working on these horrible cases low stress it's not it's going to be high stress so we try to relieve some of the stress with humor and camaraderie 100 percent. it's really important because otherwise you're going to burn out 100 percent. so our question for you both is what kind of emotions do you feel when you finally get to see a doe's face oh um do you want to go for this one well i mean it's different every time but definitely always very surreal. Uh, it's very spooky sort of feeling. 
because there's been a couple of times where we've thought we were pretty sure that we found the right person, but we couldn't really compare the photo that we were finding to anything because there was only like really bad postmortems available and no good forensic art or no photo at all. So I think the times that it's been the most spooky feeling has been when we've been able to actually compare a photo of somebody alive and smiling to, you know, what we've been looking at the whole time. Wow. Yeah. It's very healing for the team, especially because we've, we've all been looking at, you know, a a postmortem photo or just forensic art of somebody. And when you see details of what happened, yeah. And just staring at the case details of their last moments. Wow. Yeah. And to see a, a picture of what they looked like when they were alive is a very big deal for everybody who's spent long hours on the case. Yeah. Kind of like just very rewarding. Yeah. It's, it's definitely very rewarding. The most rewarding is hearing the reactions of the family members and when there's a new gravestone placed with the person's name that's uh-huh. that's probably the most rewarding part but I think the most like really emotionally impactful part is seeing the photo and I think that's because it is actually healing uh-huh. the reality of the case details and postmortem photos is very traumatic to sit with and that's not the way any of us would want to be remembered yeah everybody wants to be remembered in some way that you know, is more representative of how they lived rather than how they died. So that's what seeing a photo is. It represents how they lived, not how they died. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I remember when we were talking in the Finley Creek episode, everybody in the task force was just saying how emotional they got when they finally saw that picture. And that's just amazing. Yeah, it it really does make a big difference. Um, If we are interested in a case or if we're being given a case where there's only postmortems available, I'll almost definitely ask if I can do new forensic art because you can get a lot out of a postmortem photo. Somebody is recently deceased, but having to look at that the whole time, you don't really want to. And also there are changes that happen immediately after death. Like things go slack right away and Mm -hmm. I know how to adjust those. So even just new forensic art makes a big difference, but when you actually see an actual photo of somebody in life, that is, um, I don't think there's been a single time that I have worked on a case where we found a photo of the person we were IDing. I'm pretty sure every single time I've ended up crying. I'm a yeah. crier all the yeah, time. Me too. Over all the stupidest <laughs> stuff, but especially this. <laughs> yeah, Nat and I are both criers. <laughs> Always. Always. We'll be doing a case and crying. It happens frequently. <laughs> or laughing. It's one or the other. Yeah. Oh, we do that too. Crying, oh, crying and laughing. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So what are the hopes for Redgrave Research Forensic Services in the next five years? Next five years? Hmm. I mean, I honestly am not sure that I would be able to project down the road five years because just looking back at the last three Mm-hmm. everything has been so unpredictable. Yep. Yeah, we've crammed about 10 years in the last three years, so I don't mm-hmm. know how to predict the next five. <laughs> 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 I think we're both just trying to help as many people as we can before we can't anymore. Yeah. Um, and maybe this is, uh, you know, not, <laughs> not what you <laughs> thought you were bargaining for when you asked the question. But 
Um, so we both have a genetic condition called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder that affects your joints and predisposes you to arthritis and various other things. So we don't actually know, we're both pretty disabled. We don't actually know how long we're physically going to be able to do stuff like working in this field. And so that's one of the other reasons we really feel it's important to educate others and mm-hmm. to make sure that not only we're replacing ourselves in the field, but that uh, you know, we're creating more people who can do this. Because um, we don't know how long we are going to be able to. So we just have to kind of like power through. And we don't really think super far down the road in terms of years, I think. We get through yeah. probably one year at a time. Absolutely. I completely understand this mentality completely. And, you know, you do what you can when you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we've still got like brains that work halfway decent. We're going to keep using them until we can't anymore. <laughs> and, um, you know, like, I guess the crux of what I think is what I hope for us in the next five years is kind of twofold. One is to have it be known that we're here to, you know, be the educational resource for the people who want to learn how to do this and have like our name be known for that reason. And in turn, also to therefore not be needed as much mm-hmm. because yeah. there's more of us. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we work a lot. We do. <laughs> we work really hard. Um, and a lot of the work we do is not paid. And no. we would like to shift that so that we're making at least enough to, you know, live on. <laughs> yeah. We're just starting to do that. Just yeah. barely right now. Like our company is less than a year old. And we're just kind of breaking even. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's typical for a lot of startup businesses, yeah. but I think for doing this in the middle of a pandemic, that's not bad. It's no, okay. yeah, that's great. <laughs> okay. We just, we just got into an office and hope that that will give us a little bit more visibility in our local area because we really would love to be able to break into some Massachusetts cases. Um, yes. Massachusetts is very difficult to talk to because um, I don't know. I'm not really, I'm not really sure why it's been hard to talk to them. We did a presentation about a year ago, right before actually pandemic shutdown happened. Yeah. Um, we went out to Boston and did a presentation for the Boston police sexual assault unit. And that was really good. And we started a really good conversation with them and they wanted to send us some cases and then COVID happened and they went, Oh, well, our whole budget and, you know, priorities and everything has shifted. And um, so we're going to have to put everything on hold. So I don't know if that's maybe happening everywhere. Um, It's slowed down lab work and it's slowed down exhibitions. Yes. It has severely slowed down both of those things. Um, Lab supplies are getting diverted to COVID research. A lot of lab equipment suppliers are in China. Uh, There's stricter sterilization and and, uh, cross-contamination policies. So there's that. And with, uh, with coordinating an exhumation, it's very hard to maintain social distance during an exhumation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's impossible. Yeah. So that's actually been one of the reasons why some of the cases that are in our pipeline are really slowed down because coordinating those have been really difficult. But there's so much that is above ground to work with. Um, that's being affected by, you know, lab slowdowns and budget cuts. So, Mm -hmm. but I think overall, given those factors, I think we've been doing pretty good. Yeah. I think that's also our, our projections of the future are 
I'm hesitant to make any because I don't know how soon COVID restrictions will become less necessary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a big variable. Yeah. Yeah. And also we're kind of doing things backwards anyway, because um, first off, we started a business during the pandemic. Um, <laughs> second, uh, we gained international notoriety before our local paper even bothered to cover us. <laughs> <laughs> So um, we, we've definitely like flipped a bunch of things on their heads. So, yeah. You know, it's hard to predict much when things tend to pan out like that. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I don't know if you both have noticed, but I feel like Nat and I have noticed that the media stream for true crime right now is absolutely exploding. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We're just wondering if you both think that that is a good thing for these cold cases going forward. Well, I have a couple of things to say about that. The main thing is that for a number of lesser known cases, any, any exposure is good because otherwise they would just get forgotten. I think that one of the reasons why the true crime media has increased so much is actually because it gives people some level of feeling empowered mm-hmm. and feeling like they can do something because the main demographic of people who are interested in true crime are people who are unfortunately people who tend to be victims And it's really interesting to think of it that way because you realize that what you're doing is you're trying to understand something and also trying to gain power from it. And I feel that being, you know, real humans helping real humans and being able to have conversations with podcasters and and people on web forums and everything about what we're doing and being as honest as possible about why we're doing what we're doing is not only beneficial for us because we want to be seen as real humans in this field, but also beneficial for the people who are participating in these conversations to know that there are people taking care of this and that we really, we really care and we really appreciate any sort of input. Mm -hmm. So true. That is so true. It is interesting. I think most of the folks I know who have gotten into this field one way or the other, it does start from a crime almost always, Mm -hmm. especially for the cold cases and unsolved. It seems like there's a higher mark on those. And I would agree. It's definitely the, they, needing answers yeah. yeah and that ties in with the the transdo task force stuff like it is empowering for us specifically to work on this because yeah. if at any point my life had gone a different way i could be one of those people mm-hmm. and i feel like my ability to survive and the sheer luck of the universe deciding to keep me alive means that i have to go back for the people who didn't make it well and the yeah. number of friends that we have seen die just in like 15 years of being in the trans community and the LGBT community is a lot. And that can really be very depressing. And either it can be overwhelming or we can do something about it. So I think we got overwhelmed for a little while and got sick of being overwhelmed by it and decided to do something instead. Yeah. Like, honestly, I tried to live stealth for a while and it wasn't working. <laughs> um, I realized, you know, I'm, I'm pretty obvious. I can't erase where I came from. Somebody's going to find it eventually. I feel like being able to be visible and not only be visible, but be strong is really yeah. important. And I feel like that can also apply to people who are involved in true crime discussions of being a regular person who can give input on a hard issue is actually really important. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, we're actually all regular people. <laughs> and um, when we're working on forensic genetic genealogy cases, we all come from different backgrounds too. Like it's really interdisciplinary. We've been talking about anthropologists and, and uh, cold case detectives, 
people in library science, people in computer science, like people who are just like moms who like to read a lot, you know, people who like history. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. everybody brings something. And honestly, the number of times that I've drawn on things that I learned in creative writing class is really weird. Like I know how to make fictional people and somehow that helps me understand real people. It's like things like that. Everybody has (laughs) to bring. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think that another thing that's important to talk about is what is entertainment is a really like intense question. If you actually think about it, Mm -hmm. like, is it okay for something serious to be entertaining? Yeah. It's a hairy kind of topic. People are going to have big feelings about it. Um, I think it involves understanding the actual definition of the word entertainment. It doesn't have to be just like, oh, this is fun. It can be, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. I think it, it matters the level of respect that the true crime media is mm-hmm. done with um, as to whether or not it's helpful to a case. And I- we, We've seen it go not good. Yeah. I definitely have seen a few productions that I feel like, mm, I'm not sure that I would have made that choice in yeah. that production. We run um, into that a lot. And- I also think that there have been some productions that have done so much for investigations that they've just been invaluable. So on that note, we are talking with a couple of different people about documentaries that they're making. And we're talking with a producer about possibly getting some kind of show or something about our work. And we've had to think about this heavily because mm-hmm. we are very, um, we're very busy and we're very private people. We're also kind of weird and awkward. <laughs> um, we don't really like being on camera, yeah. but if it helps people know that we're here and that we can work really hard cases mm-hmm. and helps them to become familiar with our work and what we can do to help them with their cases, it's worth doing, even if it makes us feel weird to think about being on the TV. If we were going to be on the TV, would it help our cases? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would we make sure that it was done respectfully? Absolutely. We would do everything we can to make sure. Yeah, but definitely. I'm willing to be uncomfortable because I actually do think that true crime media can help cases. That. Yeah. I really think that it can. We've actually gotten a fair amount of communication from actual agencies who want to submit actual cases because they heard us on a podcast. That's amazing. And it's like just some detective who listens to a podcast, you know, when they're doing their laundry or whatever, because <laughs> it's what they're into. And they, they email us, oh, I heard you on a podcast. I have this case that I've been working on and I don't know how to get it into forensic genealogy. You know, it starts conversations. Yeah, definitely. And sometimes Nat and I, we kind of struggle with certain aspects yeah. of this because we like to do the smaller cases that, aren't blown up in the media uh, that need more attention, but Mm -hmm. also it's hard because you have family members that kind of want to leave it where it lays. They don't want any attention. They kind of just shell back and don't want any of that. So we kind of struggle because there's a lot of cases that we have wanted to cover, but we've reached out to the family members and we haven't heard from them. Mm -hmm. So we kind of chose not to go that route. Yeah. Yeah. And even in our own family, that's been a thing. So yeah. 
and we understand the feeling awkward. Like we're very private in our, our real lives. We completely understand that it is a struggle because there are times where we're like, Oh, you know, maybe we should have more, more presence out there. And then it's like, oh, I don't know if I'm willing to give up my anonymity for that, you know, but at the same time, it's like, I want to help these cases. So we completely understand that feeling. It's tricky. It is. It's a balance. It is very much a balance. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, you all do such amazing work, really just beautifully done and kind. And it's so powerful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we, we definitely pour our hearts into it. So yeah. it's good that it shows. We want to make sure that the work speaks for itself. And uh, part of that involves us speaking up. And um, I am uh really a, a kind of a died in the wool and introvert at the end of the day. Um, I can start talking and I will keep talking, but I will be exhausted by the time I get home when I'm done. Cause I'm like, Oh no, too many people all done. <laughs> yeah. um, and I have the budget for that. You know, like I really yeah. like that's something that I need to decide to make time for. Yes. But what matters really is the work that we're doing. And I will put myself out there for the work that we're doing. And also another part of it is that like, when I actually like get into it and I really start talking to people, my weird comes out and I don't filter it. So, <laughs> so that's another part of it. So I kind of like retreat a little bit so that people don't see too much of my weird because it's all over the place. <laughs> oh, same, same. But so many people who get into cold cases are weird. And I think it's because we, you know, maybe feel on, on the outside of something and, we're, we're interested in the cases that are the outliers. We're interested in, in yeah. anomalies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if you ask me what cases I'm drawn to, it won't be like the pretty young girl does. It won't be, no. it won't necessarily be the children. It'll be like the old man who might've been like ditched by his family and having his social security yeah. checks taken or like mm-hmm. somebody who might have been a sex worker, but maybe wasn't or things like that. Um, yeah. You know, Stuff like that, or like, you know, partial remains that like, how did they get there? You know, things like that. I I definitely gravitate towards the hard luck cases. Um, (laughs) We definitely want to prioritize minority cases of any kind. Yeah. The internship for the training course program, we actually do offer a half scholarship for applicants who are people of color or in the LGBTQ community, because we need more of those demographics in the field. Because yeah. those are the people who are victims. Black, indigenous, or person of color um, mm-hmm. yeah. applicants would qualify for that. So That's amazing. Like I was saying earlier with the Transdo Task Force, it's important to a minority community to know that people who are working on their cases are part of the community. Mm-hmm. And we can do that for the trans cases. It's really hard to do Black genealogy. It's really hard to do Hispanic genealogy. Yeah, There are very few people who specialize in minority genealogy in the United States. And that's the database we're working with. Those are the cases we're working on. And we've ended up having to learn how to take all of those cases and work all of those cases. Mm -hmm. And it would be better if we could make sure that we're making space in the field for other genealogists who are part of other minority groups to come and participate in the creation of this new field because we we need diversity from the get-go in order to not have an imbalance of cases that are getting solved. There's a recent article that was um, published in The Atlantic, I think about a month ago, 
that was about why are all the forensic genetic genealogy cases that are getting solved white. It's a very interesting article. Yeah, that's a really valid point. I'll have to check that article out myself. Genealogy as a field for decades has been uh, predominantly white, honestly. There's a lot of racism in the field, um, not necessarily outward or, or overt or maybe not even intentionally, but it's deep. It's, it's very, very deep. Yeah. It's just so intrinsic that we don't even see it. We've talked about this before, that sometimes it's there and folks don't even realize what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the same thing is reflected in which cases get prioritized and which ones get the most attention to be solved. Because again, people don't even realize they're doing it. People make assumptions based on observational bias and things that they've been taught. And that's when cases fall through the cracks because they are somehow less important, but they're not. It's just some deep-seated part of a person's psyche has been taught throughout their life that those are less important and don't even realize they're doing Yep, 100%. And then we all don't realize that we're feeding into it too. So mm-hmm. it's nice to see that dynamic change. And it's a super important conversation to start having and, and to start doing. Yeah, we, we really hope that we can um, contribute to making a small dent it's it seems like a mountain of a problem it's crazy because uh, nowadays it almost seems like we're going backwards with things that are going on in the world i'm sure you both are familiar with the missing sage smith case she's very well yeah transgender and african-american and i'm pretty sure um sage also struggled with mental health Mm -hmm. so not like the pretty cheerleader that was from like a Ivy League school that went missing. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. we're still going backwards, but you kind of have to look at, you kind of have to look on the bright side of things as, as hard as it is. Like I went to the doctor's office the other day and something that I noticed in my form was there was an option for female, male, and other, which that other wasn't there before. Wow. I've never seen that before. And I might not have been as aware of it as I am now, but I saw it and I was like, wow, that's something I haven't seen or noticed before. There's a lot of places that are starting to try to figure out how they can make their forms more inclusive. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's a valiant effort and it kind of falls short, but at least they're trying. And like, really, a lot of places are just starting to try to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. it is true. It is good to say at least they're trying. Um, It would be better if they all would approach organizations that could help uh, advise and guide them on how to really make it super functional when they do that revision. (laughs) It would also be very helpful if when people are trying to be inclusive, they actually contact the people who they're trying to be inclusive of. Yeah. And that is also (laughs) something that is is a struggle, but you know, Effort is effort. Um, it is a mountain of a problem. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? <laughs> oh, that's a really good way to you know, <laughs> way that's, to say it. that's a, exactly. Even if it's a small thing like terminology, if we can see a change in that, that would be huge. You know, I would like to stop seeing like other and, and maybe see, you know, trans. You just be right in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yep. Where, you know, and it's funny because I struggle as a, as a minority myself that, you know, I, I pass as white, but I'm not. And so it's one of those things that I've always been super sensitive to because I noticed it forever, 
even just like the list for, yeah. for what race you could be. And so it's a pain that I myself have been always very hypersensitive of. So I know how it feels to, to always feel like you're kind of marginalized. Like, you know, it's just a stupid form, but it's like, it, it's yeah. your identity. It's who you are. So it does matter. And, and I love to see us move more towards that. And like you said, getting those cultures, those races, those genders, what have you involved so that we're having the right conversations. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly why we want to have more black indigenous people of color actually working on forensic genealogy cases Yeah, because we can learn how to do the genealogy technically, but it feels like it's not entirely our place to do that. We're just doing it for now until we get the right people on it. Like mm-hmm. there are certain cases, like, uh, like, especially native American cases. Yeah. We don't want to do that genealogy if they wouldn't want us to you know? Right. And there are definitely very good reasons that indigenous populations may not want to participate in DNA research. And we would not want to try to force them or trick them into doing that whatsoever. And, you know, it's, it's really, um, it's really delicate. It's a very delicate conversation. Yeah. And you don't want to overstep and make anyone feel unsafe. You want to make sure that they understand that we only want to do what is helpful. And if it's not helpful, we want to know. And if they're able to, if they're able to help and if they're able to participate, that's even better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like if there's a tribal police in an area Mm -hmm. um, where there's a Native American case and the local police is submitting the case, but the tribal police isn't involved. I would raise, raise an eyebrow. I would raise an eyebrow before mm-hmm. taking that case. Yeah. Definitely. And I think you mentioned it before. Where can our listeners look for that information for that scholarship? Our training course is at fg4le.com, the number four. And in terms of scholarships and also in terms of sliding scale, we're, we've been offering a sliding scale because of uh, pandemic year, because of coronavirus, making it very difficult mm-hmm. for everyone. And we, we probably won't do that in an ongoing way, but we're definitely doing that this year. So all of those types of things are just, just through conversation with us. Just email mm-hmm. us. Send us an email. Send us an email, training at gmail.com. And we're very easy to talk to and accessible and our intern group is very small and it does require an interview process and not everyone will be right for the program. Right. But there's definitely available slots. We have space and there's opportunities in the field. That's awesome. It's so cool. And it's really something I think a lot of people don't realize is attainable too. That's something I've always been like, oh, you know, I think it'd be really cool, but is that realistic to my life? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I think realizing like, oh, wow, it actually is. I can really help. And I can do even in a small way. I have these skill sets. It's, you know, it's, it, it helps somebody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everybody can contribute something. Even if you're not doing the work yourself, upload yourself to yep. GEDmatch and attach a tree. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Gonna be doing that. <laughs> actually, one of my cousins, so my grampy, is adopted. And one of my cousins actually found my Grampy's tree just by using his old last name. I guess we had his older last name before he was adopted, but Mm. it is hard though, because you can only go back so far, but I mean, we have it. So maybe I'll upload it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. absolutely. The other thing to mention is that the effectiveness and the speed of 
this technique is only going to improve over time because more data points are getting added to databases all the time. More people are testing, more people are building their trees and uploading them, and there's just more reference points to go on. So the longer we're working on these cases, the better we'll get at them and the faster they'll go. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's only going to get easier in the future to do this work as people get excited and want to participate and opt in to law enforcement matching. And also GEDmatch just changed their policy so that we aren't restricted on who we can see on the match list for does anymore. It used to be that when they did their policy switch, you know, with the opt in, opt out thing, that if you're working a forensic case, you can only see the people who have opted in. Now they've recently changed it so that if you're working a doe case specifically, you can see everybody on GEDmatch. Oh, wow. Wow. So we're really excited. The next doe case that we get to upload, we're going to get to see the full match list. So it's going to be, it's going to feel really good. Yeah. We were working on a very important case when they made that switch and it was actually really devastating. Um, I still feel like horribly traumatized by it. Oh, um, no. It was the day before my birthday. Um, oh. Yeah. So um, I'll be very happy to have that access again. And I really respect them for figuring out how to uh, make that change in their terms of service in a way that was as painless as possible mm-hmm. because you don't need to cause any further harm or obstruction to unidentified dissidents. Those people are people who have families who are waiting for them. And that, that just makes me so happy. Yeah, it really does like make you realize just how important it is. So that was all the questions that we had for you both. Was there anything that you wanted to add? Oh, I don't know. I feel like we've interjected a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. We've added a lot to the conversation. <laughs> We love it. We love it. That's the way it should be. The one thing that I want to add is that because of the way that we're structured with the Transdo Task Force and the training course and with Redgrave Research, if there are cases of an unidentified gender variant decedent and also an associated unsolved perpetrator of that case, we can actually do both of those. And I just wanted to make that clear because we're, we're looking at it from both sides. Um, We want to be able to have it be known that not only can you not erase the identity of a person who deserved to live and live out their life the way that they wanted to, you also will be held accountable for that and we will find you. (laughs) That was one of the main reasons that we wanted to leave the DNA Doe project and separate out what we were doing um, so we could take perpetrator cases. Right, because they don't. It's very specific. Yeah, exactly. So we can do that going forward if there's, like Anthony said, if there's an associated perpetrator DNA profile to go with a doe, we can do both mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, and the other thing is uh, we have the ability, because it's our company, we can, <laughs> we can decide to make less money if we want to. We, uh, we waive genealogy fees on any trans case. Oh, so wow. any, mm-hmm. any case that's going to be coming through um, the trans task force, yeah. umbrella. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to charge any, any of our associated fees. Is It'll just be the lab fees. Uh-huh. It's too important. We we just have to get them down. Yeah. What, whatever the lab yeah. fees are, we'll also try to keep them down. Um, we're working with a company right now to try to negotiate with 
they're in talks with a couple of different labs, I think, about trying to find us somebody who will run our lab processes at no cost so that we can get all of the costs for TTF taken care of. Wow, that's, you both are just so fantastic. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, seriously. I love everything you do. <laughs> it seriously aligns with us so well. If folks wanted to donate towards costs, towards labs, things like that, is there an option for them to do that? Yeah, so we're not a nonprofit. We're not, you know, like the DNA Do Project, you can make a donation and it's tax deductible and sure. everything. We're not set up to do um, tax deductible donations like that. What we do have right now, we do have one case that has a live fundraiser and we're doing it through Justice Drive, which is a service that actually Parabon offers. And we're the first non-Parabon case to be listed on their website for their fundraiser. We just asked and... (laughs) We just, uh, we're in communication with CC Moore. And so Anthony just messaged her and said, hey, is this uh, Justice Drive service Parabon only or is it open to anybody? And she was like, oh, I I don't think anybody's ever asked before. (laughs) And so we just sent an email and asked. Mm -hmm. And they were like, yeah, sure. Just send us the information and we'll put it up. And so they helped us to set up the fundraiser and fundraiser page. Mm -hmm. And um, and they're not charging any yeah. money for it. That's a really great service. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's really important to uh, be colleagues with people in this field right now. We all need to be working together. And I'm really yes. glad that we were able to coordinate that and be able to use that service. So um, yeah, Preble County Penny's fundraiser is up on Justice Drive. And as we have other cases come through that we can announce that need fundraisers, we will probably be doing it the same way because that seems to be working out pretty good. Mm-hmm. So they'll be there unless the agency wants to do it a different way or if it's like a university, I might have to go through the university. But for the most part, I think we're going to be doing it that way. Mm-hmm. And it uses GoFundMe as a platform. So it's something everybody's familiar with. Great. And we can also put up any of these links on our socials, on our website. And- yeah, awesome. absolutely. We just made a flyer for... Um, Penny's fundraiser that we are mm-hmm. about to post as soon as we're done recording this. Yeah, actually. we're going to go uh, make our post about it. Yep. And <laughs> we just looked and her fundraiser is 20% funded. Yeah. Oh, wow. So wow. that's pretty good. It only went up a few days ago. That's pretty good. We didn't even have a flyer up yet. And yeah. <laughs> so it's pretty good. <laughs> yes. And if there's anything we can do on our side to help, let us know. We're all about it. So definitely. So Thank much. you. Was there anything you wanted to add, Nat? No, no, this is awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking time out of your exceedingly busy lives. Yes, too. seriously. Thank you so Just much. Just chat with us. Yeah. We're, we're jam-packed, but we're flexible. Yeah, we, we'll try to I know we, had, we had to reschedule on you a couple of times because uh, stuff, movement on cases. stuff comes up <laughs> unexpectedly. And sometimes mm-hmm. we have to rearrange our day. Our calendar is like a series of moving blocks. Like, yeah, <laughs> they're constantly getting shifted around. So um, This sounds like my life, so yeah. I completely understand. Um I can't even tell you how often I have to shift our recording nights or what have you just due to everyday life stuff. So it happens and it's oh, yeah. never an issue. And we are totally fine with moving 
recording night due to movement in a case. Normally it's like, yeah. not, it's a little too cold out for me to be in my car. Can we schedule tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, I'm never nearly as good. I'm like, Hey, I got stuck at work longer than expected. So we got to move that. So when it's for a case, especially you're just like, um, yeah, uh, whatever you need <laughs> because the greater scheme of things too, you think about it and you're like, Oh, that's that hour that is changing somebody's life right now. And they, they may not even know yet. So yeah. Right. They've been waiting this long. Let's not keep them waiting longer. Yeah. So it was such a pleasure to have you both. And, and seriously, again, like we always say, you know, this isn't going to be the last conversation by any means, you know, (laughs) we adore hearing about what you're doing and what's going on and cases, all of it. So we're just fascinated by the field. So thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. Well, you're most welcome. And and definitely we'll, uh, chat with you soon about your local case ideas. Yeah. All right, nerdlings. So that concludes part two of our interview with Anthony and Lee Redgrave. We just want to thank them both so much for coming to join us and being so willing to answer all of our crazy questions about forensic genetic genealogy. We hope you all enjoyed this episode. And if you are interested in helping out or learning more about the Redgrave's research, please uh, check out their website at redgraveresearch.com. If you're interested in learning more about the Transdo Task Force, you can check that out at transdotaskforce.org. They are currently doing donations for a Jane Doe case that they are working on, which is that of the Eaton, Ohio Jane Doe, who has been nicknamed Penny. And there's currently a GoFundMe available to help cover the cost of testing. So if you'd like to donate, the links to her fundraising site are in our description box. We will catch you next time, nerdlings.